Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey y'all, I'm Otis Pickett, the University Historian at Clemson University and a man of faith based here in Clemson, South Carolina. Welcome to Purpose That Prevails, a podcast about faith, religion, and walking a faith-based life. On the show, we're going to be joined by both believers and scholars, leaders in the fields of education, history, and religion. My hope is that you find these conversations inspiring, and maybe you and I will even learn a thing or two along the way. Before I introduce my guest for this week's episode, I'd ask that you subscribe, rate, and even review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you've stumbled upon the show. Please also tell your friends, family, and pastors about it as we'd love to get support and get the word out. Okay, now to my guest for this week. My guests today are Ansley Quiros and Sam Perry. Dr. Ansley Quiros is a person of faith, raised in the Presbyterian Church, and as a professor of history at the University of North Alabama, successfully integrates her understanding of faith and history. She's also an author and has written extensively about the intersections of race, politics, and religion in today's society. She has been integral in teasing out the history of the development of an interracial faith community in America's Georgia and has been a compassionate voice in helping fellow Christians understand where Christianity and justice intersect. Sam Perry is one of the preeminent sociologists in the United States in the areas of religion and civil religion with a focus on the rise of Christian nationalism. Sam currently serves as professor of sociology and religious studies at the University of Oklahoma. He's been a leading scholar in creating awareness of the dangers that nationalism can have when buttressed by Christian faith. He was even interviewed by the January 6th committee as an expert contributor on Christian nationalism. Sam is also an author and has written extensively on conservative Christianity, American politics, race, and families. What we hope to achieve on today's show is to help our audience understand the dangers of what can happen when faith is manipulated by politics. We also hope that today's show will inspire Christians to ask themselves, what can I learn from black Christians about engaging in acts of justice? Welcome to Purpose That Prevails. Hey, how are y'all doing today? We are here with um, Purpose That Prevails with Otis Pickett. And we have Dr. Sam Perry and Dr. Ansley Quiros with us today. Two awesome young scholars doing amazing work in the field of sociology and religion and history and religion. So thank y'all so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Otis. Good to be here. I, I, I kind of like for our audience to get to know who you are and sort of things you like to do. So outside of teaching and scholarship and speaking and writing about race and religion, (laughs) what are some things you guys do for fun or just hobbies y'all like to do? Well, this is Ansley here. I would say I have a golden retriever that I like to walk around town. I live in a small town. Um, So a lot of my hobby time is chatting with my neighbors, which has been a sweet, fact of life um, in a college town. You just run into people you know all the time. Um, I've done a stint as a little kid soccer coach, which I found to be very fun and also pretty stressful. Um, I'm more competitive than I realized. Um, I love college sports. And um, yeah, that's about it. I like to cook. I like to listen to podcasts. I like to listen to your podcast, Otis. All right. All right. I like it. I like it. 
Sam, what about you? Uh, yeah, so I have uh, three kiddos and uh, six, uh, eight, and 11, almost 12 years old now. And so uh, my my time is pretty much spoken for <laughs> going uh back and forth to kids' soccer games or theater performances, uh, which I love. This is uh, it's a really fun season in my kids' lives, so I really enjoy being able to be a part of the things that they're doing. Um, outside of that, similar to things like Ansley's, I love audiobooks uh, all day long when I can, and then uh, getting in a run every now and then or, uh, or, or a workout when I can. That's, that's pretty much it, though. Awesome. Well, um, it really is. It's just so great to have you all here. Thank you again. Um, we, you know, I come from a church tradition background. I attended an African American Baptist church in Charleston, South Carolina, growing up, and and then a multi ethnic church in Jackson, Mississippi. And and oftentimes we would take time for testimony. It's testimony time. Okay, tell us the ways in which God has worked in your life and how that has. Tell us about that journey, Ansley. You want to get us started? I was baptized in a Presbyterian church, PCA, and um, I think I came to faith when I was four years old. Um, if I had to put like a a time on it, uh, but really there there was never a day where I didn't hear God's voice and know that God heard my prayers and loved me. And so there were of course um, moments where that deepened. I had wonderful teachers. I went to a Christian school in high school. Um, and so I got a really good example, several good examples there of what um, a full Christian life could look like, that it could engage with other people, it could engage with activities, it could engage with the world of ideas. You didn't have to check your mind uh, or your heart at the door. Um, and then that deepened in college as well, had had sweet friends who walked with God and um challenged me on different points of what I had grown up believing. But, and then in, in my adult years, just continuing to walk with God through seasons of life. Um, but yeah, it's really a story of God's faithfulness to me. Um, and then learning to, you know, shed my own certainties and my own self-righteousness along the way. Um, and, and realize that the, there's still so much more I don't know. Um, and there's so much more mystery in life with God, but the story of Jesus remains like very compelling to me. Um, so that, that's my story. Thank you, Ansley. How about you, Sam? Yeah. Um, grew up in a Christian home. My parents are both, uh, uh, devout Christians. Uh, dad went to seminary at, at Dallas Theological Seminary and they met each other on campus crusade staff. In fact, and so like we, um, were very much, uh, you know, grew up in a Christian, household expectation that we would go to church and that we went to youth groups and all those, all those kinds of things. And so, uh, never actively rebelled against any of that as a kid. And, and when I say actively rebelled, like I would have always considered myself a Christian, even though I, I, I was not, um, I was probably just living a normal, I think what would, would have been, a uh, kid's life in public school, uh, growing up. Uh, I don't think that, um, I don't think I really internalized a, a faith identity until I was in college. And, and by that, I mean, I was, I was probably, I did not become a Christian, I think, formally until I, I uh, became a Christian through a, an organization called Campus Outreach. Um, that they I were, I was at a school in Georgia and uh, had some people on staff there and some students uh, share the gospel with me. And I think challenged me with, with the message of what it meant to be, a, a, to really be a Christian, not just to, to kind of believe some historical facts about Jesus, but to, to really embrace that as, 
as a part of my personal lordship uh, and uh, decision making. And so, um, yeah, was was discipled through that ministry and, and actually went on staff with my wife with that ministry for three years after college. So I worked with uh, campus outreach staff at Augusta University in Augusta, Georgia. Then afterwards went to seminary because uh, I felt like that was the next path. And so I went to Dallas Theological Seminary and and uh, it was somewhere in the middle of seminary. I just I think I discerned that God had not made me for pastoral ministry. I just wasn't a good, I don't think personality wise, I wasn't a good fit, too much of an introvert. I really liked the research and writing part and intermittent teaching. <laughs> and so teaching every now and then, but mostly the research and writing in my, in my cave. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I think, uh, ended up going to grad school after that. And since then, uh, we've been involved in great churches. We were involved in, in a very uh, solid multi-ethnic church in South Chicago, uh, at, uh, uh, Holy Trinity, which is a Presbyterian church. And then uh, we are uh, a part of a nice church here in Norman that's mostly college kids and some families. And uh, we lead a community group there. And so we, we are, uh, you know, we've been, we've been fortunate uh, to, to, to be around community wherever we happen to have been, whether that was in Georgia or Dallas or Chicago or Norman. Wow. So one thing that I'm drawn to about both you personally and your scholarship is that um, you're sort of wrestling with the idea of being a Christian in higher education, but also drawing on the Christian tradition in your own writing and research. And so I was wondering if you talk a little bit about uh, the role that faith communities or the history of religion in America or Christianity in general plays in how you go about doing your work as a scholar. So I started studying history, not really knowing what I was doing. I actually started out as a historian of immigration because I thought then I could study everybody. Um, and then I went to graduate school and took a sociology of immigration class. Mm. And in that class, they had us read a book called Inheriting the City that had like all this data in it. It's, I think, a 2008 book um, about immigrant neighborhoods in New York City. And basically, there's a phenomenon called segmented assimilation, where immigrants can, many immigrants assimilate upwards as they become Native uh, American, or become Americanized, but then some groups assimilate downwards, and those tend to be darker-skinned groups. So even when the cultures are quite similar, um, you think about like the difference between a Cuban immigrant and a Dominican immigrant. In a Puerto Rican, they like, and it's basically like pigmentation. Like they're, they're very, the power of American racism is such that it like exerts a sorting um, effect. And I just remember I was sitting in this class and I was like, what? (laughs) So I started thinking about the South and I started, started thinking about my upbringing in Atlanta and um, in what essentially were de facto segregated churches. Um, and I switched fields and I started studying the civil rights movement. And part of why is because the faith of so many people, ordinary uh, leaders like John Lewis and Martin Luther King and others, but also these ordinary people who would go out and march for freedom, knowing they could be killed. Mm. And they would be asked by reporters, you know, why are you doing this? And they did not say well, we really would like our 15th Amendment rights upheld. Now, they definitely did. But a lot of what they would say is, 
um, I am free in Jesus. And if I die, I will be resurrected with him. Hmm. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> and so I was very drawn to it. And there was something in reading those documents of especially black Christians and feeling such a kinship of faith, um, feeling like I knew what they were talking about when they would talk about Jesus as their friend. Um, and so really finding a great cloud of witnesses that I had never heard before. Um, and that's kind of how I got into the, the field of civil rights history at all. And then I think I would love for white Christians to know that, um, to know that there are these important divisions in American history and American life. But as believers, there's a, a deep unity and a deep uh, shared spirit um, that runs through the whole history as well. And so that, that kind of under undergirds a lot of what I do is, is wanting to explain to people the power of that story, um, how that's been lived, how many faith, ordinary faithful witnesses um, have lived out their days. And I hope that that's encouraging to my students and also encouraging to readers or um, fellow conversation partners who are Christians and those who aren't. Thank you, Ansley. Yeah, so um, I, I grew up in an inter interracial family. Uh, my parents adopted two African American girls when I was uh, when I was four and six, and so I've never not known uh, what it was like to have um, black people in my in my family to to have race be a kind of a normal conversation. Um, and as I grew up, and uh, my my mom uh, was estranged from her own mother because of that. Like her own mother, my mom was raised in like Montgomery, Alabama. <laughs> Uh, in the in the 50s, and you know, my my grandmother was very much of the opinion that like black people don't belong with white people, and my parents were like, well, if that's the way you feel, then we're just not going to interact, and we didn't. Um, so I I grew up knowing what it was like to have black people in my family, and I also knew that there were these people that uh, disagreed with uh, black people being inter inter interacting with in a in a in a even in, even in a family um, with 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 white people, that segregation was a thing, history of racism, um, and I grew up angry at that. I grew, I just grew up like I kind of you know almost on edge, ready to pick a fight about racism and and uh, and those kinds of things because I was so you know my parents were evangelical Christians. They talked about why it was why racism was wrong, and they talked about why it was um, not just un ungodly, but uh, wrong in, 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 in a, in our kind of society, not just as Christians, but in, in, in our society as well. And so I think becoming a Christian, going to college, taking sociology classes, which I loved at the time, even though I wasn't a major in that, those were my favorite classes by far. I think I already had so, something of like a proto sociological eye to view those problems with all these questions about my own faith and religion and, and how it had been implicated uh, which I learned it had been implicated deeply in, in, in history of racism and segregation and used to justify all those kinds of things. And I just said, I, you know, I, I, I gotta, I gotta wrap my head around what, how, how, how my faith, which I have always taken to be something that is liberating, uh, and against oppression and, and, and very much so in favor of equality and justice that it has been used and is still used in some ways to justify the oppression of, of of outsiders, of outgroups, people of color, especially, but, but, but any outgroups. And so I think that just drew me uh, to sociology as a discipline where I can study that professionally. And I can't, I mean, it's just uh, I, the best job in the world to be able to uh, sit down and uh, 
read, write, research, look at data, uh, and to see what is this connection between um, faith that I love and um, and things that I, I feel like it is it is outrageous that it would be implicated in. <laughs> Uh, like prejudice or the uh, the oppression of people and sy- systemic inequality and all those kinds of things and so mm-hmm. I I see that as part of my uh, my own not just professional goal but personal goal to help uh, my own people to speak to my people and challenge them mm-hmm. when necessary to mm-hmm. understand the reality uh, that is unpleasant to learn uh, and is nevertheless true uh, that that we need to repent of collectively and and to change if we can uh, C S Lewis wrote his essay. Uh, as a part of a book called uh, The Weight of Glory. And uh, and the, this essay is called Learning in Wartime. And in this essay, he's, it's basically a talk that he gave to Oxford. And he's speaking to all these Oxford students during World War II. And he's basically like, he's trying to answer the question, how could we possibly be going to college right now and learning when there's Hitler? Right? Like, there's Hitler, like there's people dying and we're in college. And like, what is the role? And and in this essay, he's it's a, it's a beautiful like talk. But but what he, he says is, you know, um, if if we are here right now, uh, we can we can take it as God as a sign that God has us for whatever reason. Our our job is to learn and to do to live the academic life to the glory of God. But he clarifies, to live the academic life to the glory of God does not mean making every conclusion come out to edifying ends. Hmm. Uh, like in other words, to make us feel good about our faith or to make it sound encouraging or like promote Christianity or that kind of thing. Because he says that would be that would be to to offer the author of truth the unclean sacrifice of a lie. Uh, and I, I love that quote because it's just like, God isn't honored by our lies. He's not honored by like me, like covering over or papering, papering over or like Ansley papering over the, 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 the implication, you know, how the church was implicated, uh, in, in the, in the white South, like during Jim Crow and that kind of thing, just to, just because it makes white Christians feel bad about them. Like that's still the truth is the truth. And I feel like as Christians, we have a higher calling to pursue, that with integrity because God is honored by us doing our jobs well. Amen to all of that. I also think we can face hard truths about ourselves and our past and our communities because we have so much freedom in Christ Mm -hmm. and because God already knows. And so I think there's a, a weird game that we can play where we are protecting ourselves. And some might say protecting the witness of the church. It's not working. And the witness of the church is like, we are not very good. God is very good. And Jesus is very gracious and loving. Like we can be a mess and we're free to ask big questions and to own up to our failures um, precisely because that's the pattern of our faith. And so we're doing, we're doing our faith and, and we're certainly doing God no favors by lying to ourselves or about ourselves. Hmm. Yeah. In scholarship as Christians, as you're uncovering these very difficult things, there's often resistance to our work where we may be labeled as liberals who do not love the things of God or who are communists who want to destroy, or uh, I've heard these kind of terms um, about our work. I mean, and so this kind of interesting role of trying to speak truth and be open and prophetic and use truth, which God delights in, right? Uh, A historical truth to inform our society. And this episode is really unique because we're all about the same age when we're younger in the faith. And so 
what what does it look like for you if you're thinking about Christians now in our moment in 2020, 2023, 2024? What kind of prophetic word or advice would you give to Christians in America now thinking about like, how do I stand up in this moment and engage despite all this fear, Ansley, and despite all that, right, what do I do? Where do I draw from? I think untangling our faith from conservative politics is probably the work of of this younger generation. And you can see some of that happening in deconstruction, And in sort of, for some people, that link is so tight that they cannot separate Hmm. it. And so a rejection of um, the platform of the moral majority can feel to people like a rejection of their faith. And so I think being ready to tell those folks like, no, there's like a whole nother uh, lineage that you can draw from like to be a Christian means as much about being American as it does about being a Christian. So Sam, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Some. I mean, I think Ansley hit the nail on the head. Like I think Christianity has become so indistinguishable in people's minds, right? Like in, in not just in, on the, on the political or religious right, I think on the left, those two things have become so connected that it actually is, it actually is driving people away. Like literally, like we can actually track this and survey data over time. Like it, it literally is driving younger people away from the faith because once younger people tend to be a little bit more liberal minded, you know, just because younger people are younger people. And so like they, they tend to be, so if they, if they get, if they get the connection, if they make the connection through pastors or politicians or whatever, that that's what it means to be a Christian is to be a right wing reactionary, uh, kind of the kind of person that I see on TV. Uh, then they say no thanks and they walk away from that. Or at the very least, it alienates them or kind of embarrasses them about about that. And I think about the things that Tim Keller said. I grew up in the PCA listening to Tim Keller back in the you know late 90s, early 2000s. And Tim Keller is just for, you know, he's always hit the same note is, is how does the gospel, if the gospel is true, how does that change the way we do everything? How does it relate the way we change to the world? And if the gospel is true, then that means I'm forced to answer several really important questions about um, about how I treat others and how I think about like my future and our future on this on this planet and in this country, how I relate to myself as a citizen. So I, I want to press the church into into really considering the theological implications of what it, what does it mean, practically speaking, to be aliens and strangers in this in this mm-hmm. world. What does it mean that my citizenship is in heaven? Mm-hmm. What does it mean? That what does it mean to love your neighbor in in a really in a in a in a Luke kind of way like in the Good Samaritan kind of way that that is not somebody it's not somebody who's ethnically like me it's not somebody who's religiously like me it's not somebody that I know it's not just me helping out my own it's 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 me helping out people who are in need what does it what does that mean if that is if that is what Jesus says it looks like to to be a somebody who loves their neighbor how do we actively live that out um, and and it and I would also want to press the church to really think critically about the kind of messages that have been shoved oh, uh, either implicitly or, or explicitly th- uh, about government, about the role of uh, uh, the, the, the connection between faith and economics, right? Like that, that, that true Christianity has to be just kind of like uh, laissez-faire free market, you know, capitalism with no kind of social safety nets or like no government involvement or those kinds of things. I mean, that is just, 
like there's an argument for it, but that's just cultural, right? Like that's just American. That's just white middle-class Anglo-Protestant history. I think actually in, while you're talking, Sam, I was thinking one, one resource that the church has that's um, like very sadly underutilized are the gospels. <laughs> and like, mm. what would it look like for Christians, people of faith to kind of say, all right, let me put aside what I've been told it means to be a Christian. And what if I just like read John's gospel? You know, I feel like when you encounter Jesus in the gospels, he's always saying things that are difficult and comforting. And that idea that like, yeah, we're sent into the world, but we're also abiding in Christ and we have the helper and we're not alone and we're called to abundant life. Like that's a very different message than what church culture and what Christian culture is telling Christians right now. Hmm. So when people do speak up, when when people speak about their experiences in churches that are abusive, the, the default hmm. is to disbelieve them or to shun them in some way. Hmm. Right. That's a good point. And two, I, I don't know if y'all have encountered this too, but it's been a very difficult process to help people in the church to move from relational um, injustice to our systems and our society and the ways in which our institutions are shaped that perpetuate that. And that that's been a very difficult transition in my teaching from helping people to understand, like you can listen to someone in their experience and go, Oh, that's bad. I don't like that. But then to wrestle with, wow, the entire city of Chicago has issues we need to think about and we're complicit in that. Right. Like that's a whole different discussion, which gets at your field, <laughs> um, and our sociological development over time. But I want to move now to kind of thinking about, we all grew up in the same, almost probably a very similar Christian subculture in America in the 1980s and 90s. And it was the height for me of like, what would Jesus do bracelets and like, the Christian bookstore and you mentioned crew and FCA and all these ministries and just evangelicalism at this time. And um, so we were told all kinds of things about personal holiness and piety and the ways that we should behave and the ways that we should speak and the ways that we should protect our witness, right? Our public witness. Um, and, uh, and, and it's just so interesting to me sort of growing up in that culture and being taught by older Christian individuals in the eighties and nineties who cared so deeply about marriage and who cared so deeply about, uh, love of neighbor and who cared so deeply about, uh, if I said a cuss word, right? Like that would be really bad. And so, or if I smoked or right. And so, um, I think for a lot of us in our thirties and forties, the struggle has been watching that entanglement of our Christian faith with politics and the ways in which Christians have wholeheartedly opened their arms to politicians who really openly violate all the ways in which we're taught to behave and taught to act as Christians. And so like, I was wondering if y'all could speak to that, like, you know, these values and what role does it look like to like, even if your values and how you're taught to be come into contrast with 
things that we hold very dear? Like, how do we process that as Christians? So, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think you have diagnosed uh, the major part of the problem is, is uh, because our faith has become so wedded to one partisan uh, or, or ideological identity, like to be Christian means to be conservative, which means to be Republican or something like that. Those two things, if those, if all of those things become wedded to one another, then, then the meaning of faith, what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to be a devout Christian becomes less and less that I, that I hold a certain kind of like character values and moral values that are consistent with Jesus's life or what I, what I, you know, whatever I read in the gospels. And it becomes more about whether you support the right team. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, we actually, uh, we're publishing a study on this right now. We've got all this data about like, we, we asked, uh, you know, or Pew asked Americans, what does it mean to be, uh, and, and to rate politicians is whether they were religious or not. Like, you know, do you think Donald Trump is religious, Mike Pence, you know, Joe Biden or whatever? And we found the, the leading predictor of whether or not you thought a politician was religious, that includes Trump to Bernie Sanders or whatever, was just whether they were in your political party. And after that, it was whether you were liberal or conservative, nothing about your own faith or anything like that. And so it becomes like those those partisan lenses become the lens through which we evaluate people, even religiously yeah. now, is, is whether they're mm -hmm. on my ideological that is, I mean, we've got to understand how toxic that is. Mm. Like that is, it is so, uh, it is, it is emptying our own faith of any kind of theological content or certainly any kind of moral or ethical content and just reducing it to party identity and maybe ethno-cultural tribal identity and loyalty. Mm. Um, and I, I think that leads us down a path of where like, you know, religion in the future, you know, what it means to be a Christian means little more than um, you know, any, any, anything more than just kind of a spiritualizing, uh, some kind of, uh, uh, party identity or loyalty. I've spent some time thinking like, why is this working for ordinary Americans who in their own lives really do, like you were saying, Otis, they do take marriage and personal piety and cussing and drinking like very seriously. But then they excuse this awful behavior from these political leaders. And so when I think about the folks that are making a lot of these decisions, many of them came to faith in that moment in the late 70s and early 80s, where they felt they were converting in large numbers through Young Life or through these campus organizations or through church missions. And that was a moment where, especially the the anti-abortion pro-life movement felt like a righteous cause. And so something about folks that came up right at that moment, the politics and the religion were wedded together. And mm. now they're kind of all in for it. Because um, I wondered, like, why not just leave it? Like, we just leave the politics. But there's so much of the, those early years, folks were um, going to church, participating in young adult ministry, and marching in pro-life parades or um, doing this sort of activism. And I, I think for my own generation, you know, there are different causes. Like if I was in my, you know, late sixties, early seventies, and someone tried to tell me that racial justice was not a good cause, I, I don't know that I would ever abandon it. It's so integral to how I think about my faith. You know, those stories are tied together for me. And so I wonder if there's a way that for, for people, it, it's, it's not as easy as, 
I think it's cynical coming from the pundits, but I wonder mm. if for, for ordinary people, they're tying those, those elements together. When Christians are trying to assert political power or assert cultural power, it's just a very un-Jesus move. Mm. I wonder if the Christian church is supposed to be in power. I think about just the times in which the church has suffered tremendous persecution and martyrdom and what the Lord does in that. And I wonder sometimes should, should Christians be seeking to be in complete control of everything? Is that, is that our natural place in which we should be seeking power or does the power come from God who works in us, in our brokenness and our weakness to display his perfection in the perfect picture of his son, Jesus. And how do we communicate that? But it feels like we're in set, we're so afraid of losing power and there's this fear and you're holding on to it and gripping it. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I agree. I think it's pretty difficult to make a, uh, having been to seminary and knowing the new Testament, well, I think it's difficult to make uh, an argument theologically from the New Testament that that is a pursuit the Christians are that is that is anywhere remotely within kind of the top goals of of, of Christians on earth is to pursue that kind of uh, worldly power wh- rather than serving our neighbors, being good citizens, uh, being salt and light uh, to the earth. Uh, and while while we are sojourning uh, through this through this through this world, right? So like uh, there's this there's this there's this combination, right? So like James one talks about like true religion that our father uh, sees as good and perfect is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep one from being polluted, keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So there's this combination of like maintaining our own distinctiveness and witness and kind of what does that mean, and then also spending the rest of our time kind of making sure that we are looking after, like you said, uh, Ansley, uh, you know pursuing the marginal people and making sure that they're um, taken care of. What is that? What would that, what would that look like if we had a reorientation of our goals rather than pursuing power at all costs? You know, we, we, we are not, we do not have to protect God and we do not have to protect the church. And I do think like if Christians, if we, if I can remember that the victory is already won and so we can live quietly and we can live humbly because we're not the saviors. Like mm. I think of John the Baptist, like I am not the Christ. Like we are not the Christ. There is one. <laughs> Preach. Preach. Well, and well, actually on that one other thing that um, Jamar Tisby has said so powerfully is, are we afraid, you know, of persecution? Like that's the story that we have. Like we suffer in our bodies, we die with Christ and with Christ are raised. That's actually our fundamental story. Um, yeah, I like we, we need to recognize this is an overt intentional tactic that many folks are using to get Christians to just come along and go along and not ask questions. So it plays on it. It plays on our need and our anxiety about our own position in the world. Like, so if a politician signals that I'm on your team, you and I are on the same side, then we feel better. Like, okay, somebody's got our back here. Uh, somebody stands up for our values. We feel safe. It's the same kind of thing that draws us to like any any celebrity, any Hollywood celebrity that gives any kind of hint 
of Christian identity. Like they said, they go to church one time or they said like they have some kind of testimony. Or they, they kind of, Hey, I remember praying for like Michael Jordan in the nineties. Cause people were like, if we got <laughs> Michael Jordan, everybody right. would become a Christian. Like, I mean, right. right. Like you have this celebrity, yeah. like we got to get these celebrities to believe. <laughs> exactly. I thought the most recent ones were like, you know, Chris Pratt was right. talking about going to church or so, you know, in his own, and that's great. Like, I hope Chris Pratt is a Christian. Like, By the way, I love awesome. Michael I like Jordan. I still pray for him. Amazing basketball yeah. player. Yeah, so, you know, it's like, I love all those guys and I appreciate what they do. But it's the same kind of anxiety, that cultural anxiety that makes us like want to reach out and say, yes, they we claim that person because they claim us and we have this kind of, you know, and they're going to somehow fight for us in kind of the battlefield of politics and culture and stick up for, for us. When, when I think like Andrew was saying, like we have like Jesus, Jesus wins, right? Like it's, it's okay. Like we have that kind of, we can rest. And like, if, if we know how this story unfolds and we really don't have anxiety about like which way this is going, then we can just, we can be determined to be faithful and obedient in things that we know we're supposed to do. Hmm. And I think that's where we've been deceived to say you need to you need to take care of your own and scrap for what you can. I know y'all have a lot to do today and so I don't want to keep you too much longer. But I do want to get to sort of like the last 3 years. And so we've had like so many things happen that you know, the COVID pandemic, the death of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement, the January 6th uprisings, and you see Christians uh, representing different perspectives in these arenas. And what do you make of that as a person who is a, a scholar studying these topics? How do we process that as Christians? Um, so I, I think similar to the things that we've been saying thus far, I think the church needs to recognize this as a volatile moment, primarily because um, partisan politics has co-opted a lot of the language of faith and co-opted a lot of the language of, of values and, and different code words uh, mean different things now. And it, and the volume of that kind of rhetoric has been turned up and it's been amplified. Yeah, it's been a wild three years. <laughs> the thing is, we have what we need by God's grace. And so there is a purpose for people. And turns out loving your neighbor is actually really hard. And yeah. it takes a lot of creativity and a lot of fortitude and a lot of perseverance more than a political campaign in some ways. Mm -hmm. And also just the idea of like wanting to be drawn into a great adventure, a great story. We, churches have got to equip people not to do that. I, uh, something I love about what Ansley said, I think this is spot on, is what kind of situations or environments would make the church, people in the church, more manipulation proof, right? Like what would protect us from that kind of manipulation? And I... I got to think it's it is uh, the optimism, the natural optimism and hopefulness that comes from from believing the gospel. Uh, it is it is uh, a mandate to actually like know and love my neighbors, even people who are different from me, so that I know they're not like threatening and coming after me. I got to think getting out there and kind of you know knowing what's going on locally in your own neighborhood, in your own town, and being invested in that would 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 offer some kind of protection, uh, some inoculation against that kind of virus. Yes. I think about, I've been thinking about this a lot, like this sort of reset button. I think we all need to be hitting like after everything we've been through and it, the reset button for me is kind of like, can we, can we just get back to what's basic hmm. and, you know, watching my daughter in the NICU breathe every day, just breathe for life and how central that breath of life is and doing basic things like prayer and, and, and talking to our neighbors 
and trying to spread happiness and joy and, and just kind of getting back to the basics of the Christian faith. Well, let's close with this. All right. What's, what's the hope? What do you want to see as you move, as we move into our fifties and sixties and seventies, and we move into the 2040s and 2050s, what's the hope that you would like to see in our society around these issues and the, and the Christian church's response? I would, I would love for the church to, to, um, just to reclaim the idea of, of what it means to have a witness, like in, in a positive way. Um, I, I see that and I, I just want to cry or throw up my hands. Like, cause I just feel like the, if, if, if I said to the average person on the street, what are Christians known for, or what are, what are, you know, what do you think of Christians and what do the Christians value that you know, or that you've read about or whatever, I would hope that they would think loving their neighbor and serving people that they are the salt and light of the society that they, they happen to live in. You know, they, they, they do their jobs diligently and they are generous and they are gracious and kind people rather than a bunch of like raving culture warriors that, that seem to not care about anybody except their kind of like four issues that they, you know, demand, you know, guns, second amendment or, 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 or whatever. I'll let Ansley uh, wrap it up. What gives me hope? Um, and so what gives me hope is that God is faithful. God is at work. And we don't have to be afraid. We can live in a lot of freedom and with a sort of eternal hope. And that may look small. That may actually not look like doing, quote unquote, great things for God. That may look like planting a garden and loving a child or visiting an elderly neighbor. But God can make small things very big. And he, he, his eternal accounting is very different than the way that we count money and votes and influence. Um, he's up to things that we can't see. Amen, Ansley. Um, thank you both so much. I, I think um, uh, one thing I want our listeners to hear from today is don't be yoked. Don't be under the yoke of feeling you have to do everything to fix everything. That mm. there is great freedom and that Jesus wants you to have freedom. And he wants you to have freedom to be who he's made you to be. And he delights in that. And I, and I think sometimes we, we tend to overthink the Christian life. Uh, but Ansley, I think you're exactly right that the small things, doing the small things like that is exactly what the Christian is called to do, to see those small things and to do them. Jesus did small things. And a lot, a lot of small things. And he cares about those small things. He cares about the widow's might, you know. Um, and uh, and, and I, I, so I think we can, we can move forward and take steps and have hope, as you're saying. Sam, thank you for your excellent work. Uh, I just have been such a great admirer of your work from afar for years now. And so I just really, it's a great honor to have you on. Thank you for your, your testimony. Thank you for your, um, your, your scholarship and your ongoing work. And I hope this isn't the first time we get to interact and, and do work together. And Ansley, thank you so much for your friendship these many years and just your 
your ethos and your heart and your scholarship and just your perseverance. And you both give me great hope. Thank you for being our purpose that prevails today. Thank you. Right back at you, Otis. Thank you for listening to this episode of Purpose That Prevails. If you've made it this far, I hope this means this conversation was thought-provoking and lights your path on this walk of faith we're all on together. A reminder, please spread the word about the show to your church community, your family, your friends. Every bit helps. If you would be so kind to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. It's been a pleasure for me to host the show and spend this time with you. My name is Otis Pickett. Until next time, God bless. Next Chapter Podcasts.